Before we get going on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I would like to say that no matter how you found the show, whether it be a suggestion on iTunes or word of mouth, welcome. Let's Talk About Chef is available pretty much everywhere you can listen to podcasts. So if you enjoy the show and can spare one second of your busy lives to tell someone about it, we would be very grateful. If you for any reason want to reach out to the podcast, you can write to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me personally on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. This week is a brand new episode of Let's Review, my attempt at reviewing restaurants and food from my life that has either scarred or inspired me. In the past two Let's Review episodes, I reviewed Alouette in Toronto, the anonymous hot dog vendor outside of the Rogers Centre, Momofuku, and the pizza that made me want to be a chef. This week, I will be reviewing salt and also the pies that my grandma refused to teach me how to make. I would also like to say that this episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Audible, the world's best audiobook website. Audible has quite literally every single book you could possibly imagine, and with life today being more hectic and busy than ever before, the simple act of finding the time to sit down and read a book is nearly impossible. With Audible, you can easily find and download any of their millions of audiobooks and listen away. You can try Audible for free by going to audible.com. Just sign up and Audible will give you a free audiobook of your choice. If you're not happy with Audible, you can cancel any time, no questions asked. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Salt is something that I use every single day of my life. Whether I'm adding it to water for pasta, seasoning a steak, or putting it on salads, salt is the one thing that seems to go in everything. I remember when I first learned about seasoning food properly, the magic trick that chefs perform without thinking. By adding salt, we can enhance and bring out the natural flavors of a food, and it's a careful balance. Learning how to season food well is an art. It takes time, and you have to be careful. Otherwise, what you're eating will taste like, well, salt, and that's a bad thing. Pretty much every restaurant has salt available on its tables. Only the really good ones don't offer it because the chefs are confident that they were able to season your dish properly. And before stepping into a professional kitchen, I had never really given salt that much of a thought. My parents had a small white salt shaker sitting on their countertop for my entire childhood. It would never really be used except for the one relative or friend who asked for more salt on their food when they ate in our house. I remember watching an uncle, after being handed the barely used shaker, put more and more onto his food, and I was kind of in shock at how much he was about to consume, not really understanding why anyone would want to eat that much of the stuff, and wasn't it supposed to be bad for you? That uncle died shortly after that incident, not from salt but I'm sure this sheer amount he ate probably wasn't the best decision and may have contributed to his early demise. Salt can kill you. Eating too much of it can cause a condition called hypernatremia, which can damage brain cells and lead to seizures, coma, and death. One only needs to think about the stories of ships sinking in the ocean and as the surviving crew members float in the small lifeboats waiting to be saved, slowly dying from thirst while surrounded by water, one person always seems to not be able to handle it and go and drink the salt water and then go insane from the high amounts of sodium entering their bodies, eventually dying. The effects on our bodies that salt can produce are terrifying. 
But in a cruel twist of fate that only Mother Nature could provide, we also need it to survive. Our bodies are incapable of producing sodium, and we need sodium to make our muscles contract, control dehydration, and to send the nerve impulses from our brains through our bodies. Salt makes us human. It's what separates us from animals. And it's also the reason that our ancestors survived and evolved into us. The earliest humans were hunters. They got the necessary salt for their diets from eating meat. And although there was no possible way for them to know that it was essential to their survival, in times when there were no animals to capture and hunt, they would eat vegetables. And by putting salt on them, they tasted more like meat. And so their bodies kept evolving. The Egyptians used salt as part of their religious ceremonies, offering it to the gods. Egyptian art found carved into stone temple walls from 1450 BC shows the making of salt. They would trade it with other cultures for spices and gold. This magical substance had the power to transform food and to preserve it. It didn't take long for humans to figure out that you could put fish into salt and make it last for months. You could store the summer's harvest of vegetables in it and be able to eat potatoes and carrots in the darkest and coldest months of winter. As human beings left the warm and easy living areas of the Nile in the cradle of civilization, they took salt with them so that they could survive. The word salary, the act of being paid for your work, comes from the word salt. In Roman times, the production of salt was illegal. Only the government could harvest it because it was used as currency. And every week, part of the Roman soldier's salary was a bag of salt. The word salad also comes from it because the Romans would sprinkle it onto their greens and make them taste better. Other words that come from salt include salvation, sauce, salsa, and sausage. Salt has been important in China for two millennia. The ancient Chinese would boil seawater in clay pots until the water evaporated, leaving the crystals behind. By 1000 BC, they had over 40 different varieties. And at the time, the Chinese nobility figured out that by taxing salt, they could make a lot of money. Money that was used to spread the Chinese empire further than ever before. The phrase not worth his salt comes from the ancient Greeks, where slaves were traded for bags of salt. The phrase salt in the wound comes from Napoleonic times, when the emperor lost over 1,600 men because the cart carrying the salt that would be used to heal the wounds was captured by the opposing army. No salt meant that the wounds turned gangrenous, and then he lost an army. During the Civil War in America, a salt war was fought when, in 1864, Union forces fought a 36-hour battle to capture the town Saltville, Virginia, the home of an essential salt mine that was sustaining the South's armies. Without the mineral that the South was using for healing wounds and curing food to make it through the winter, countless men died. There are dozens of stories of battles being fought and won over salt. Our ancestors understood that salt meant life and death, and they were willing to die for it. Mahatma Gandhi, in an act of protest to the tax placed on salt by the British, walked across British-controlled India to Dandi. He walked 10 miles a day for 24 days so that he could defy British orders and make salt, using it as a weapon of protest. It was one of the final acts leading to the independence of India. Not unlike Gandhi, hundreds of years earlier, the French Revolution was started because of a salt tax placed on its production, resulting in the peasants revolting against the upper class who ruled them. 
Over 2,639 of the French elite had their heads removed by the guillotine. Salt is the reason that the early European explorers were able to survive in North America. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, the waters were so full of cod that it was said you could get off of the boat you were on and walk to shore on the backs of millions of fish. So when the fish were caught, they were hung from the sails of the ships. The salt in the air curing the bodies so that the explorers could travel further inland by taking the cured fish with them, settling Canada. Just like the Vikings had done when they arrived in what became Canada over 500 years earlier. Salt has created and destroyed empires. Poland in the 16th century was a vast kingdom that grew because of its rock salt. It ruled the world in riches until Germany started producing sea salt, taking the money and prestige away from them in an instant. Venice fought and won a war against Genoa for control of salt. And as the carts full of the mineral would roll from Italy all over the continent, cities like Munich grew from small villages to massive urban centers from the taxes the carts had to pay for the privilege of being able to use their roads. It's amazing to think that these little white crystals have played such an important role in our history. That salt could define our species and aid in the growth of it. We today have forgotten that since the dawn of civilization up until around 100 years ago, that salt was the most prized and sought after commodity in the world more valuable than gold, and even more valuable than life itself. I never used to really think about salt that much. I didn't realize that it is what makes me better at my job than you are at cooking when you're at home. I and chefs like me know how to use and respect salt as a tool, as a trick. It's what makes the food we eat and prepare taste good. It's what we as human beings need to survive and use to survive. From the first Homo sapiens that stuck fish in salt, to the first Europeans wandering across the continents as they changed underneath their feet, taking the salt with them. It's what we used to make icy roads safe, what we needed during wars to heal the sick and dying. It started revolutions and ended countless of lives and allowed empires to grow and flourish. We are so lucky that the mineral we need to make our human bodies work was available in the seawater on the planet that we were floating on. Without salt, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. None of this would be here. All because of that white crystal sitting on your countertop that we need to survive. I'm giving salt five stars. Let's review my grandmother's sexist pies. 
I never wanted to be a chef. I do not have the romantic story of standing on a stool next to my grandmother as a child as she lovingly taught me how to roll pasta, or being on the water catching fish and learning the secrets of hunting and making game with an older and wiser mentor, or having my mother let me peel carrots and onions while she made beef bourguignon on Sundays. I was the exact opposite. Food was not important in my house. My parents, who I love both dearly, were busy working and raising three kids who played hockey, danced, were in plays, and generally up to more extracurricular activities than you could possibly imagine. The thought of sitting down to the dinner table as a family after my mother, who taught primary school for nine hours, enjoying a lovely home-cooked meal was not really an option that often. Of course we ate, and we ate well, but it was always fast, quick, easy food that we could shove down into our mouths and not be late for a game. There were, of course, special occasions. Thanksgiving, for one, where my father would work for hours to make the turkey stuffing from the dog-eared and food-stained joy of cooking book that he had owned since the 1970s. Looking back on that, I can vividly remember him taking liberties with the recipe, making it his own. Maybe that was the first time I realized you didn't have to follow a recipe exactly to make something delicious. Birthdays were always the occasion when my mother would make cake from scratch, hiding coins inside little envelopes of wax paper so we children could eat with the ever-present threat of emergency trips to the dentist if we cracked a tooth on a chocolate-covered quarter. Those were good times, wonderful memories. But in no way was food and eating a part of my childhood other than the thing you did to keep going. One summer, my exhausted parents dropped my sisters and I off at my mother's parents' house in Cornwall, Ontario, so they could escape the three of us for a week and act like normal adults. I didn't mind, although the paper plant that Cornwall was known for and my grandfather was the foreman of resulted in the entire town and surrounding area to smell faintly of rotten eggs. You did get used to it after a while. My grandmother Dot was an adorable woman. She was short, no more than five feet tall, and always greeted us like we were starving and underfed recently released prisoners. To get ready for the onslaught of three hungry mouths, she would bake feverishly for days before our arrival, knowing that the first thing her grandchildren would do when they arrived was run downstairs to the basement refrigerator and gorge ourselves on the cookies, Nanaimo bars, and pies she had prepared for us. My grandfather, on the other hand, terrified me. He was a tough old man who respected hard work and that men should be men. I am sure that the sight of his grandson showing up once a year with hair growing ever longer, Beatles in Radiohead t-shirts and baggy jeans while clutching a copy of Harry Potter, not only scared him to death of what was happening to me in my generation, but also made him want to turn me into a man. One summer day, my grandfather woke me up at 5am on the futon in his basement by kicking the side of it and telling me that he was taking me golfing with his World War II buddies while my sisters and grandmother went berry picking. Half asleep, I was packed into his silver Ford Taurus with two sets of golf clubs, a brown paper bag of tuna sandwiches, bottles of water, and a fuzzy AM radio station talking about the Montreal Canadiens' chances of winning the cup that year. Because the prices at golf courses are treason, my grandfather has yelled, when I foolishly asked why we had to take food with us. My sisters, on the other hand, were placed into the second car with juice and breakfast and floated away with my grandma listening and singing along to Celine Dion's That's the Power of Love to pick the strawberries and blueberries that the region is known for. My grandfather's friends were somehow more terrifying than my grandfather. These three men had actually gone to war and probably racked up a pretty impressive body count while over in Europe. My grandfather couldn't go and fight due to his being colorblind. He stayed behind and worked at the paper mill. 
Somehow being unable to fight because of a minor medical condition resulted in jokes from his childhood friends that he was a pussy, and they told him of this every chance they got. It pissed me off. Here I was, 14 years old, watching the man that literally would tell me to stand up straight if I was bending over to scratch my knee, being knocked down a few pegs because he hadn't run a Nazi through with a bayonet or thrown a grenade into a crow's nest and taken out a sniper. Golfing is the one thing that at the time of 14 I could do astonishingly well. I have no idea why, because I am sure I would look somewhat physically disabled if I were to try it now, but back then my weird lanky body and muscles stretched to the point of snapping because of a recent growth spurt meant one thing. I could drive the ball about 250 yards without thinking. On the first hole at 6am, while these three assholes stood there and said things like, let's see what Sunny Boy has got from the McCowell gene pool, I teed up the ball and smashed it dead straight down the fairway out of sight to the sudden, wonderful silence of three of World War II's finest. I don't think I had ever seen my grandfather smile at me before, but he sure did that day. I beat the crap out of those three veterans, and I'm glad I did. I did what the Nazis failed to do. I swept the battlefield with their corpses, and by the end of the 18th hole they had all mentally checked out, standing there glumly watching my grandfather high-five me and whoop loudly whenever I sent another drive dead straight down the fairway. On the return to the house I was feeling pretty good. My grandfather actually handed me a Labatt blue light on the back porch by his pool and we drank a beer together, my first beer, while my sisters inside the house were getting ready to make a pie with Dot. All right, Brian, my grandmother said. That's enough fun. Your grandfather has to go to the store for dinner. Why don't you go downstairs and watch TV? Can I help you make pie, I asked, suddenly wanting to see how the thing that I shoved into my mouth every time I visited was made. No, no, this isn't man's work. You go downstairs and watch television. There's cookies in the fridge. But I really want to make pie. Downstairs, can I please just watch? No, this isn't for you. And so, feeling like I had been kicked out of something extremely special, I went to the basement and sat listening as hard as I could on the bottom step to the sounds of Dot teaching my sisters how to use a fork to crush and macerate the berries, how to cool your hands under cold water in the sink so that your body heat didn't melt the butter, how to fold the edges of the crust between your index finger and thumb to make it the pie look stunning around the edges and to seal in the filling properly. Their small house filled with the smell of pies in the oven, and I sat there the whole time trying to soak it in. I listened for an hour when my sisters got to watch and partake in something that had been passed down to my grandmother from hers and on and on, a recipe and knowledge that I will never have. Years later, when I was now a head chef at the age of 27, I put pie on the dessert menu. I had spent months figuring out how to make one like hers, reading cookbooks, watching YouTube videos, covering my kitchen at home with flour and butter, much to my girlfriend's chagrin, she's now my wife. And after all of that trial and testing and spending what little money we had and couldn't afford as a couple on failed attempt after failed attempt, I finally got to the recipe that takes no time at all and always tastes delicious. You would think that I wanted to put pie on the menu as a tribute to my grandmother, who passed away shortly after the pie-making day. You would think it would be a nice way to honor a wonderful and loving woman who filled my childhood with warmth and smiles, but you would be wrong. Denying me to learn from her how to bake resulted in months of arguing, hundreds of dollars I couldn't afford to spend, and on almost two separate occasions my head chef Dan in my first kitchen almost firing me for wasting product on another batch of shitty tasting pie. But eventually, after time and patience, I figured out how to bake something as close to the original as possible. Looking into your past has become so easy these days. Every day it seems Facebook reminds us of something that happened years ago. We take more pictures now than we ever have before in human history. 
We take about 1.8 billion photos every single day, and that's an amazing thing. But for me, being able to make and eat something that reminds me of my childhood, of a time before Facebook and iPhones and social media, something real that makes me remember my grandparents is such a special thing. I don't know if my grandmother would be happy I became a chef. I don't know if she would be happy knowing that I make pies to spite her. But I'm pretty certain that to me her pies were the best thing in the world and that the fridge in her basement filled with her baking moved me towards cooking. I never wanted to be a chef, but I became one partly because Dorothy refused to teach me anything about food, and I have to thank her for that. I'm giving my grandmother sexist pies five stars. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to thank Audible for letting me talk about them this week. If you want to write into the show for any reason, you can reach us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I do take the time to read and respond to everyone. Again, if you can take the time to tell someone about the show or rate and review us, we would really appreciate it. Let's Talk About Chef is back next Thursday with another brand new episode. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week.